0: Hey everyone, welcome to week two of our God Save the Queen series. Um, It feels like it's been a while since I've been up there so I gotta reintroduce myself. My name is Mark Knutson and I'm the director here at Unite for any of those of you that don't know me. Um, But last week uh, we had our intern Roman, who's no longer here, but he's going to Nebraska because he's a jerk. Um, But anyways, he shared, he did an awesome job really sharing last week the first part of the story of Esther, the series that we're doing. And we learned that she is an orphan, that her uncle Mordecai uh, adopted her. We learned that she won the bachelor between 400 other women and married King Xerxes, uh, who was the ruler of the Persian empire and that this was the greatest empire the world had ever seen. And so we're looking at this crazy story that revolves around the life of Esther and the overarching message that we are hoping that you get from this study is that how even when you can't see God, is that he is always, he's still working in your life. And Roman mentioned how the book of Esther doesn't mention God in it, but you can clearly see how he is working in and through it. And we know that, that really all scripture points to him. And So I, I want to start tonight uh, by asking you guys a very serious question. Um, who is the greatest villain in any movie of all time? You guys can just yell it out if you want. It's really not a serious question, obviously. Danos, yeah. Joe Dirt? Oh, I thought you said. <laughs> I was like Joe Dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There it is. Yes. All right. Yes. So any any great story has a villain in it, involved in it. And here are some of the ones that I think are some of the iconic ones. And some of you guys have mentioned these. But you have Joker. And it's got to be it's got to be the Heath Ledger Joker, no offense to Jared Leto and uh, Joaquin Phoenix, but Heath Ledger he owned that role that role. And so uh, the Joker, Death Death, I can't even talk. Darth Vader, probably the most classic one. Then you have Thanos, like someone mentioned for the Marvel fans out there, and then for you Disney fans, um, animated ones, we have Scar from Lion King and then Jafar from from Aladdin. And so every great story has a villain involved in it. It has a hero, and it has a great storyline and a great plot. And so the story of Esther is no different, And, and tonight we're going to be introduced to the villain of this story, but unlike those other stories, this is a true story. And so tonight we're going to be introduced to our villain, whose name is Haman. And coincidentally, he actually reminds me of Jafar, if you've ever seen the movie Aladdin. Jafar is like the second, power, the second guy in power under the sultan, and, and, but the sultan still is kind of under the thumb of Jafar. He's this evil person. And so Haman is no different, and you'll kind of see that in this story as well. So if you remember King Xerxes, he was a pagan. He didn't know God. He didn't worship God. He actually believed he was a god. Um, not a great guy. He holds a beauty pageant. Uh, where he's looking to find the most beautiful woman out of the 127 provinces that he oversees. And Esther, this incredibly beautiful woman, wins the beauty pageant, or as Roman said, she won the bachelor. um, And she becomes the queen of the entire empire. And this takes place and she uh, all of a sudden finds herself in the midst of the empire and set up for whatever God is going to do. And the whole story, again, it shows that even when you can't exactly see what God is doing... You can rest assured that he is at work and so tonight even though we're introduced to the villain here it is only a part of god's plan and what he is going to bring about despite the evil that is introduced in this story just like god is at work despite any evil that is introduced in any of our stories and so before we jump into the text and kind of continue with the story i just want to invite god into this time tonight So you guys pray with me. God, we uh, just invite you in this time, God, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your spirit, to your truth. God, may it just continually point us to you, draw us closer to you. May we become less and you become greater. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, so... If you remember, Roman left off the text last week where Mordecai had just discovered there was two people that were planning to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai let Esther know, who Esther then let the king know, and so it ends up saving the king's life um, because of Mordecai. And so it picks up here in Esther 3, so chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, it says, Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hemedetha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle and also works at the king's gate, refused to bow down or show him respect. And the reason we're told this a few verses later is because of his faith. And so every time Haman would show up at work, he go to the front of the palace, he's walking and entering the palace gates, and all the staff and, and guards, they're all, everyone is bowing to him, except for this one guy every single time, and that's Mordecai. And so then it continues in Esther 3, 5 through 6. It says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. And he learned of Mordecai's nationality, that he was Jewish. Uh, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So he goes, I'm not just going to take this one guy out. If it's because of his faith that's not allowing him to bow down, I'm going to take them all out. And So long before Hitler was ever around, this is the first person, or at least one of the, the first people who wanted to completely annihilate the entire Jewish race, the Jewish people. And so Haman wants to he wants full genocide on these people. In Esther 3:7, it says, So in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence, and the lots were called Purim, uh, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day that day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Alright, so Haman is like, I'm gonna take out all these Jews. I'm the prime minister. I'm going to put a plan together. He did something that was common then that's not common now. But whenever they had to plan an event, they would, you know, toss dice or they'd, um, what was the term? The throw lots. And so, again, the dice being called Purim. And so the, the day was determined. It's going to be a march. We're told he marks the calendar and, and the day is going to be March 7th. And now he gets the plan and he goes to the king. He says, I, I've got the day picked. Um, I've got to convince the king to let me kill these people. And here's what happens in Esther 3, 8-9. through 9. It says, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. And so it's not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, again, and this is why I'm saying he's like Jafar. He says, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give 10,000 large stacks of silver to the government administrators to be to- deposited in the royal treasury. And so 10,000 large stacks of silver would be equivalent to about $280 billion today. The entire GDP of the empire was at 15,000 at the time. And so it was a huge empire and he says, basically, I'm going to double what you have if you can guarantee that I can do this, that I can kill these people. And so the king, if you know anything about history, um, at this point, King Xerxes, think the movie 300. He just lost to Thermopylae. Um, he just lost to those 300 dudes that have the chiseled six-pack that have been clearly doing a lot of CrossFit. And he's probably thinking, I might, I might need more cash or I need more people. He, you know, just caught him at a low point, basically. And so he ends up agreeing to to what Haman's asking. And it says in Esther 3.13, Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year the property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. It's crazy. This is this is terrible news. And they would have messengers that went throughout the provinces, and whatever language you spoke, they would put the, the edict in that language so that everyone could, could see it, and it describes what's going to happen. It says that on March 7th, every person who is Jewish is to be killed, and you can take any of their stuff. It's like a twisted old-school version of The Purge. If you've ever seen The Purge, you would get that, you know, connection there. If you've never seen The Purge, I don't highly recommend it. It's kind of dark and sadistic. Um, so, yeah, probably don't want to watch that. But, so all the Jews throughout the land, they're, of course, terrified. And then it says in Esther 4.1, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter, well... So he's crying we're told that all the jewish people are actually going around the city crying and wailing Uh, they know basically they need to basically arrange a funeral for themselves and their families and the whole empire and especially the city of susa we're told is thrown into confusion and when queen esther's maids and eunuchs they came and told her that her uncle mordecai was was crying and weeping And he's wearing burlap, which is not a good look for anybody to wear. Uh, But that's what they would wear in the Jewish custom when they were mourning. And so they were telling Esther that he's crying throughout the city. And she doesn't know. Esther doesn't know what's happening at this point. She doesn't know what's going on. And remember, too, she had hidden her Jewish identity. The king didn't know she was Jewish. And very few people did. So she she hears that her uncle's crying and weeping. And it says in Esther's 4-4 that she was deeply distressed she sent clothing to him to replace the burlap and i love that they include this in there because it's this classic lady move like someone is sad i know it can cheer them up some new clothes and but we're told that mordecai actually refuses it and so then he sends the word to the queen and basically he's he's like hey don't you know what has happened and he sends a copy we're told of the edict And he has the servant take it to the queen, and and she sees what is happening for the first time. And Mordecai has the servant ask Queen Esther to go to the king and to beg and plead for the life of her people. To which she responds with the message back to Mordecai, insinuating that what he's asking her to do is a death wish, because nobody can just approach the king unless they're invited. And it actually says it in Esther 4, 10 through 11. It says, then Esther told... Hathic, the servant going back and forth between her and Mordecai, to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials, even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. In other words, she can't just go in there and plead for the life of her people. It is again, it's a death sentence. And she says on top of that, she says, and the king has not called for me to come to him for 30, for 30 days. And so we learned last week that the king had hundreds of women in a harem, which means that he was not going to bed alone every night. And so it had been 30 days since he's called his wife in the last time. And so she's basically saying, I'm not sure this is a great time for me to approach him. We're not exactly jiving right now. And she sends this message back to Mordecai and Mordecai responds with this message in Esther 4, 13 through 14. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. And Mordecai says, if, if you keep quiet, you're either gonna die because this, the, the king doesn't extend his scepter or you're going to die because of this edict. But God is going to save his people even if it doesn't involve you. And then one of the most iconic verses in the book, verse four fourteen. 14. It says, Who, he's, and this is Mordecai saying to Esther, he says, Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And you know that it really hit her right in the heart when he said that because then she responds. It says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. And so Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we're gonna hit pause here and and continue the story exactly what happens next week and i promise you it gets only better the, the plot thickens it is it's, it's a very cool story uh, but i really want to camp out on these last few verses because we see an exchange and an interaction that is related to mordecai seeing and saying basically esther you have to connect the dots all the things that seem so random and crazy uh, how you went from from peasant to princess in such a short amount of time clearly god Was always at work. Can't you see? Could it be that you've been put where you are for such a time as this? Don't miss out on fulfilling the purpose for which you're in that palace. So I want to look at three truths as it relates to this idea of purpose from Esther's story. And all of us in this room tonight, somewhere in your heart of hearts, whether you admit it or not, I believe There's a part of you that deeply desires to live a life that is full of purpose. I I can't, I imagine that we don't want to go through this whole life just consuming everything that this world has to offer, but not contributing anything to advance the kingdom of God. Where we get to the end of our life on the deathbed and, and we're looking back thinking like, did we really do anything of any significance that would mean anything to God other than just consuming everything that this world had to offer? I have to believe that, that each of you want something more, something deeper. And the good news is that God is deeply concerned about you experiencing your purpose and reason he has you here in this world. And so these three truths that we're going to be looking at tonight, they're not just for Esther, they're for you and they're for me. And so the first truth we see from this story is you and your life have been shaped on purpose. Going back to the story, Mordecai is virtually telling Esther, hey, could it be, Esther, that you're the queen in the palace because God shaped your life? This is your moment. You're not there for some random reason or to build a palace or just to have access to whatever lifestyle is there. You're there on purpose. Don't miss it. Your life has been shaped on purpose. And how was Esther's life shaped on purpose? You might ask. God was involved in the details, in who she was, in in forming her story, in the way that she looked. He was over all of that. We're told she was a woman of incredible beauty. That's that's not something she chose, or God to decide. It it was because God was involved in in forming and shaping her story. And one of the ways He shaped her was that He gave her incredible beauty. You have the most beautiful woman in 127 provinces. Like, think about that. You you can't take responsibility for that. Do you think that's just random? And all of that was because God was shaping her on purpose for a purpose. And then you look at her story. She lost both her parents and goes to live with her uncle in the city of Susa, which is right next to the king. And then God was, he was over all of that. And Mordecai is is like, can't you see, Esther, your life was shaped on purpose? And I'm telling you guys tonight that you're listening, your life has been shaped on purpose. And I, I know some of you might not believe me, but your story, how you look, the gifts you have, your personality, the talents, the way you think, all of it. And maybe it has been infected or impacted by sin, as sin always does. But God was intimately involved in shaping, and still is shaping, your story. You've been shaped on purpose for a purpose. And I want to give you guys a visual. There's this toy that maybe many of you maybe played with when you were younger, or you've seen other kids playing with. If we get this picture of this toy up here. So when kids are learning about shapes, this is what you would use um and it's pretty self-explanatory you have these shapes and and they fit in the corresponding holes right it, it's very easy obviously for adults but for kids that are young they conceptually cannot get that you'll see them with a star trying to fit the star in a circle hole or, or trying to fit a circle in the square hole and after a while they get very frustrated they might throw it it's just it's a whole thing um but that's really I mean, when you get it right, it just fits right in there. The star fits in, obviously, the star-shaped hole. And that's really what, as Christians, we believe God has called us to in life. Not to figure out how to play with kids' toys, but you take the shape of your life, who you are, how God formed you, uh, really the shape, there's an acronym for shape, if we could put that on the screen. So it's your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, in your experience you take all of it and you plug it into the holes of the problems in the world around us you plug it into the holes and in the, in the, in the problems of the body of the christ you look for ways to take what the way that god has wired you who you are and what you bring to the table and be a part of meeting and bringing solutions to problems in our world and in our church and the problem is that sometimes we act like those kids that don't conceptually get that. We see other people doing things we are like, oh, I want to do that too. And we forget that God has specifically designed us uniquely to fit in the different holes that are in this, this world and in the church. And we try to, to be like other people. So we're like that star shape trying to fit in the circle hole. Like, why is this not working out and getting frustrated? And God's like, that's not what I designed for you. That's not your purpose. That was their purpose and we each have a significant purpose a specific purpose that he has for us in Romans 12 4 through 8 it says it like this it says just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function so it is with Christ's body we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other in his grace God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well so if God has given you the ability to prophecy Speak out with as much faith God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. And you might ask, well, but how do we know what God has specifically called us to. And it might help to understand and, and know all the, all the things that we've just listed on that shape. Your spiritual gifts. If you've never done one of those uh, spiritual gifts assessment tests, I recommend you do that. Um, it's interesting to find what yours might be, but if you've never done it, um, there's this website that you could actually do that. You go to watermark.org backslash porch spiritual gifts. And you just end up, you put in your email some basic information, and it's like a five-minute test. And I just did it again. I've done these tests several times throughout the years. I just wanted to see if any of mine have changed. And apparently I've become a lot more hospitable, as hospitality is now one of my top top ones. And so that's interesting, changed a little bit. Um, But so it might help you to know your spiritual gifts, to get to know how God might be calling you specifically. It helps to know your heart. And what I mean by that is, what are you passionate about? Each of us has different passions, and sometimes that gives us an indication of, hey, maybe that's the way that God is calling me to use my time, energy, and resources. And it will help to know God's calling, again, by maybe knowing your abilities, what talents God has given you. Some of you, you know, are gifted in music, or sports, or woodworking, or construction, or some of you are gifted in working well with children. And so you, th- you need to think through, like, how can I use this talent to help bring about transformation for the sake of Christ and the city in which you, you live in? And I think of here, just off the top of my mind, I just think of um, the Kids Hope program that we have here. If you're gifted and working well with children, man, what an incredible program where you spend one hour a week with these little kids and it can change their life. Um, I know several of you are actually already involved in doing stuff like that, and it's so cool to hear those stories. My wife, for the first time this year, um, started mentoring a child, and it's been so incredible to see just the impact that she's having on this young little girl. So another thing to help you know God's calling your life is to know your personality. How you were made has been woven intentionally. God is not surprised by the fact that you're an introvert or that you're an extrovert. And so ask yourself, what makes sense and is the most effective, you know, what is the most effective way for advancing the message and hope of Jesus in our world in light of your wiring? If you are introverted that may be coming up here and speaking in front of a large group, it might not make a lot of sense for you. But you do love maybe working behind the scenes or working with the smaller groups. Or maybe you are an extrovert and you actually do love being in front of people. Maybe God has called you to maybe share up in front of people at some point in your life. Another very important thing to think about when it comes to God's specific calling in your life. And for me, I think this is a huge one. is your experience. Your story. Even the things that were not according to his will. The unpleasant stuff that maybe some of us have felt shame for at one point in your life. And the thing is, is that nothing you have done in your past is a hindrance or a problem for God to use and to maximize and advance his kingdom through you. They actually can become platforms for you to help other people who might have similar stories or struggles. And I can say that is, that is my story tonight, that I would not be up here on the stage had it not been the experience that I'd gone through. I didn't, I didn't just graduate through church throughout the years just to come into this position as a holy saint. That is not why I'm here. I, I had gone through a lot of crap in my life, made a lot of bad decisions that nearly destroyed my marriage, nearly destroyed my life. And I felt God put a calling on my heart um, to speak truth and love into people because I realized that that's where I made a lot of these mistakes is I didn't believe who God said I was. I was believing lies about myself, and I was then acting on those lies. And so now I feel like he's given me this platform where the very thing that the enemy meant to destroy my life, I now try to use it for good to encourage and to support you guys and to challenge you guys to, to be obedient to him, to seek after him so that you don't have to make the same mistakes in life. So whatever your experience is, where you lived, all that God has shaped And is part of shaping you on purpose to have an impact for him. And So I realized that was a very long first point. Truth there. I promise the next two will be a lot quicker here. But again, that point was you and your life have been shaped on purpose. The second truth. You are placed on purpose. So just like Esther, where God placed her in the palace, he takes this woman out of her family's home puts her in the capital city and then a beauty pageant and then in the palace. And Mordecai sees this too and he responds to Esther. Can't you see, Esther? What's, if, what if it's not random? Maybe God has made you queen for just such a time as this. Don't miss your opportunity by failing to connect the dots that he has placed you here on purpose. And that purpose is not for you to just to live in the palace to advance King Xerxes' kingdom but to advance God's kingdom and Mordecai connects the dots in the way that many of us fail to do when it comes to our own life and our own story and I want to ask you guys have you ever thought to yourselves like why why are you here tonight in this place why are you in the town of Mount Pleasant Michigan why are you at CMU or mid or Alma why are you working where you work who you're working with, why are you living where you're at or who you're living with. You might think it's random, but it's not random. God has placed you there on purpose. Don't fail to connect the dots. In Matthew five fourteen through 16 Jesus teaches something very profound about us. He says, he's speaking to us as his children, and he says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out, of, out for all, people, all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. And so the context of this time, when Jesus is speaking to these people, electricity did not exist in this time. And so the, the way they had lights then was they would burn oil. In their homes. And oil was expensive then. So most homes only had one lantern for the whole home. And so they, because of that, they had to very strategically place that lantern, that light in the house so that it would emit the most light around the house. And in the same way, God has strategically placed you where you could emit the most light in the darkness. He puts you in the school that you're in. He puts you in the home that you're in, the workplace you're in. He puts you in everything about your life. It is all purposeful. And you might be thinking, well, you don't know how bad my workplace is. There's no Christians there. It's a toxic environment. But he put a light there. You. Don't fail to connect the dots that maybe you're not there just to collect a paycheck, but maybe to be a light and to help other people come to find Jesus for such a time as this. Don't miss out on where you are and why God has you there. You are placed on purpose. The third and final truth you can live your life and miss your purpose. I hope you leave here with a concern or a greater awareness that every one of us is in danger of spending our life never fulfilling the God given purpose for which we were created. And why do I say this? Because we have an enemy named Satan that doesn't want you to have any sort of impact in this world. He wants you to live for insignificant things, like how much you have in your bank account, what kind of car you're going to drive, or or pleasing other people, or how many followers do you have on Instagram, or or how many snap streaks are you trying to keep alive. He's gonna tell you like those are the things that should be so important in your life. Those are the things that really matter. It's all just a lie. He just wants you to live for insignificant things. But I'm telling you, don't miss out on the purpose for which God has created you. And going back to the story of Esther, Mordecai knew the promises of God. So remember he got a message back from Esther saying that basically talking to King Xerxes was the death wish for a death sentence for her. And he responded to her, oh, you're afraid he's going to kill you. You know you're going to die anyway. God is going to deliver his people. Mordecai, and he says this because Mordecai knew the prophecies. He knew that God was going to send a Messiah, which means that the Jewish people won't be annihilated. Whatever king or whatever Haman thinks or wants to be done, it's, it's not going to go down like that because Jesus has not come yet. He's going, to be raised, he's going to raise up a deliverer from somewhere else. And Mordecai's telling her, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be you, but if it's not you, you can rest assured that somebody else is going to step in the gap and you're going to miss out on your purpose. And he's again, Esther, could it be that he's placed you in this moment at such a time as this? I want you guys to think honestly about this. Could it be that all the different things in your life that may feel random or seem random, the places you live, the people that sit by you in class or your coworkers you work with, could it be that God put you there for a purpose and he has placed you on purposes? He invited you not to miss out on your purpose by sharing the message of Jesus with those people. And here's the thing. It's not dependent on you. If he wants the person next to you you in class to be saved, he's going to save them. Just like if he wants the people, the Jewish people in this story to be saved, he's going to save them. It's not dependent on you, but you can be a part of it. And he has invited you to be a part of it. It reminds me if... You guys were here a few weeks ago. It was the it was a Tuesday before we left for Converge. We had a guest speaker, Mike, come here. And as we were doing the I Dare You series, and it was I Dare You to, to spread the good news. And he gave this beautiful analogy of a father in the garage working on a project. I think it was like working on a vehicle or something. And his young child comes in and asks his father, can I help? And I think you and I can all realize that a child is probably not going to be much of a help in that situation. In fact, they'd probably be a little bit more of a hindrance. It'd probably slow the process down. Um, And so that child most likely won't really help the father that much. But because the father loves the child, he invites the child to participate in the work that he is doing. God doesn't need your help but he loves you. And because he loves you, he invites you to be a part of the work that he is doing. Don't miss out on your purpose for such a time like this. And there has never been a time that I know of in my lifetime where it has been more needed for believers to step up and to be a part of living out their faith and purpose and not this dead Christianity that just checks the box of, like, oh, I accepted Jesus and I'm going to heaven so I can just live this meaningless and purposeless life. He wants so much more for you and he wants so much more for me. So again, in conclusion, you've been shaped on purpose. You've been placed on purpose. And it is possible for you to miss your purpose. So come back next week to find out what happens next in this crazy story. Esther, I promise you, it only gets better. Will you guys pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us. You love us enough to include us in your work and in your plan. God, I know that many of us struggle sometimes in this life of just feeling like what is our purpose. I pray, God, that you would just reveal that so clearly tonight, God. That we would just be reminded and that we would be able to connect the dots in our life, God, of, of the spiritual gifts you've given us, the heart and the passion you've given us, the abilities and talents, the personality and the experiences you've given us, God, that we can take all of that and recognize that there is very specific holes in this world and in this church and this life that you want us to fill. may we seek you first. God, I pray that you just make it so clear for, for each person here, God, exactly what your purpose is for them in this life. That they would look at each day so intentionally of just saying, God, what do you want from me today? How could I be a blessing to others? How could I be a blessing to you? Whether it be going to class or going to work or just being at home with roommates, God, I pray that you would just give us such purpose and significance and meaning in our life that only you can give us. God, we thank you for the story of Esther and the life lessons that we can learn, God, as we see that all scripture points to you. We love you and we praise you. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being a part of our community opening the word today. We here at Unite challenge you to grow in your relationship with God, to grow in your relationship with others and to go out and live a Christ-centered life. To learn more about UNITE, follow our social media pages or go to our website at mpcc.org UNITE. God bless.